Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? We've taken a break in the last few weeks of talking about common mycorrhizal networks, but I'm still on that kick, and it is back again today. Joining us to talk about it is Dr. Justine Karst, and throughout this conversation, we talk everything from the ups and downs of science communication, but also what data can show us about how mycorrhizal networks affect trees, specifically their seedlings, and just how many unknowns there still are out there. This is one of those episodes that can inspire a lot of people to make their mark in the world of ecology, forest management, those sorts of things. So listen up. But before we get to that, I just want to remind you that we have customizable merch for sale. You can go to indefensiveplants.com and click on apparel at the top of your screen or navigate to the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast and find the links there. There are a bunch of great vintage designs and all of the apparel is customizable. So there is a style in there that will work for you. And it is a fantastic way to make sure the show has a future. Once again, go check out our customizable merch. But that is entirely enough for me. This is such a great conversation. So let's just get on with it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Justine Karst. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Justine Karst, I am so excited to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. But uh, for those that aren't familiar with your work, let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Hi, Matt. Uh, Thanks for having me on the show. I am an associate professor at the University of Alberta, and I study the mycorrhizal ecology of forests, mostly boreal forest. Nice. Some of my favorite forests on the planet, I'd say. But How did this all begin for you? I mean, there's a million (laughs) different things you can do in life. And even within the world of boreal forests, there's millions more. So where did this all begin? Yeah. Okay. Well, do we have a few minutes? Yeah, of course. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. Um, So it started as a kid. I think as most people, right? It's like those formative years when you're a child and and what you do. And and, uh, so for me, I grew up in a part of the world that was pretty tucked away from cities and towns. And so I spent a lot of time outside. Nice. And we we grew up in the mountains and the forest. And um, I spent, so one of my favorite things to do as a kid was to build snow forts um, at night. Oh. And yeah, and one of the reasons I love doing this is because you know, I, I could see the house and sort of the, you know, the warm glow of the house. Um, but where we lived, because we were so far away from anything, there was just this like beautiful sky of stars mm-hmm. and the moon. And I just loved the way that it looked at night, just the, the like the reflections on the snow and, and just all those stars. Hmm. And that was one of the things. So when I was really young, I just wanted to learn about stars and the universe and, you know, looking up. And again, I mean, that kind of sky, that night sky, I have not seen for years and years and years as an adult. And, and it's actually, I mean, this is off topic, but it's one of the things like my kids have grown up in the city and for the most part, I love all the opportunities that they've had, but I do feel sad that I've, they don't have that. They have never had the night sky that I did as a kid. Um, So anyway, so love the night sky, love stars. And so told my family I wanted to be an astronomer. 
And my parents got me a telescope one Christmas. And, and I loved this idea that like, you know, when you're looking at the stars, you can only see so much, but then with the proper instrument, you can see so much more. Mm. And it, and it's this idea of like, there's so much out there that we can't see that is fascinating. Um, So that definitely stuck with me. Um, So then when I was about 12, uh, we were, we had to spend a summer in the city and my mom was doing a bunch of art stuff. And so my dad was looking after us. And so he's, you know, trying to find things for us to do. And he took us to an observatory because he knew I wanted to be an astronomer. <laughs> and we went there and yeah, loved the whole experience. And looking back it was probably a couple of graduate students that were running the show. And, you know, I, <laughs> I wouldn't have known that back then. Right. And then so my dad, he was encouraging me. He's like, ask your question, ask your question. And so my question was, what does it take to be an astronomer? So as a kid, you know, I really wanted to suss this out. And so one of the guys, he said, well, you know, you you need to go to school about 10 years beyond grade 12 to become an astronomer. (laughs) And I remember my dad and I looked at each other and we're like, that's nuts. And then both of us were just like, I'm out. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> like, and I mean, for two reasons, cause you know, I was like 12 years old and then I was just like 10 years beyond grade 12. Like Ew. that's a long time for a kid. Right. Yeah. And then the other thing too, is just like, you know, my dad and I, we just couldn't get our heads around. Like, so you, you're not employed. Like, you don't have a job for 10 years. How, how do you, how would one possibly survive for 10 years without a job? And those two things, I was just like, okay, I'm out. That's, that's it. I'm uh-huh. not, you know, a career in research is totally done. And then fast forward to when I was like a young adult and I was a young mom and, you know, a bit of a surprise. And I had to figure out like, okay, so what am I going to do? How am I going to take care of myself and this child? No like, pressure. This is, yeah. yeah, you know, that's a pretty daunting task for a pretty young person. And so and I thought, well, you know, I've always got pretty good grades. And and then it was still at the time, you know, you get a university degree, and you're probably going to get a job out of it. So mm-hmm. again, you know, very focused on a job. Right. So I thought, okay, I'll go back to school and I'll I'll finish my undergrad. So I did that. And then probably in my third year, I think, I was taking a botany course. And my instructor, Heather Addy, she asked me if I was interested in grad school. And I was like, no. Absolutely (laughs) not. And Heather knew. I was like, I got a small baby at home, Heather. I'm like, no. And she said, well, you know, you're doing well in the class and you seem really interested. And I did. I love the class because it, again, was one of those moments of like, when someone shows you how much more there is than like what's in front of you, you know, it was, it was a botany class. So we were learning about all these small details and differences in plants that I had never noticed until someone showed me. And I loved that. And so anyway, so she mentioned grad school and then she asked me if I was more interested in basic or applied research. And I was like, do you mean like doing research outside or inside? Like I didn't even know. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't even know what these like basic concepts meant. She explained it to me and I was like, well, I don't know, like maybe a mix. And I said, honestly, I, I just don't know about this. And, and Heather was one of the first people in my sort of academic sphere that I felt um, like saw me as a scientist because mm. I did not see myself like that at all. And so, and she nudged me and she said, well, you know, you could apply for a major scholarship and it could help support you so that 
you wouldn't have to find this would be your job. Wow. And so I thought, oh, like, you know, and I had kind of three things in my mind. I had to cover my rent. I had to be able to buy groceries and I had to pay for daycare. Those are like, you know, I thought, well, you know, if those things are covered off, like, you know, maybe I should try. So I did and I got a scholarship and then I went and I did my master's at McGill. And then of course, like when you're a graduate student doing your master's, the inevitable question is, are you doing a PhD? <laughs> and and then, you know, and I still was not sold on this career path. And it's not that I didn't like it, but I just, I did not see myself in it. Right. And so when that question came up, do you want to do a PhD? And I was like, oh my God, no, because I did not <laughs> think there was any way I could pass the qualifying exam. I was just huh. like, no, wow. like, yeah. no, I just, I did not see that as a possibility. And then I had a couple of close friends that said, well, you know, and again, the money thing, I was like, mm-hmm. you know, I got this kid, da, da, da. And so they said, well, just apply for a scholarship and, you know, see if that works out. And then, so apply for a scholarship and like, to my disbelief, I got one. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is so crazy. And then, uh, and then I reached out to Melanie Jones, who you interviewed a few weeks ago on the podcast. Yeah. And I was really interested in working with Melanie um, because by then I was really interested in mycorrhizal fungi. And so I worked in her lab. And then Melanie was the second person, I would say, in my academic sphere that, again, like, saw me as a scientist and nudged me. And mm. I remember one day we were coming home from field work. And she had said something, I don't know, we were talking about sort of next steps or whatever. And she had said something to the effect of like, oh, Justine, yeah, easily you could be, you could step into academia. And I was just blown away by this. Hmm. And and then I guess for me, so Heather and Melanie are two people I respect so, so much. And so I respected them so much. I still do. And And so they're telling me this and I thought, well, I respect these people so much. Like, I can't just ignore what they're saying, like, because that would mean I'm not respecting what they're saying and their advice to me. And Hmm. so I was like, okay, I guess I'll keep going. And then, um, so I finished my PhD and then I wasn't postdocing yet, but I went to a conference and I met Jason Hooksema, who you also interviewed. (laughs) Small world. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so at a conference and then he offered me a postdoc to work in his lab. And again, I was just like, wow, that's amazing. And really excited to work with him. I mean, I just think Jason is so bright and I felt he had so much to offer like where I was in my career. So then I postdoced with Jason and then, you know, and he nudged me. He's like, you should be applying for academic jobs and da, 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 da. So I did that. And then I would say it was probably in the fourth year of postdocing. I postdocked for a long time that I finally was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to be a scientist. I'm going to try to get an academic position. So that's sort of a really long winded, wow. um, like I, I was never, um, I mean, I think you can ask anybody, grad students in each of my cohorts. I don't think for sure myself. And I don't know if other people around me thought I would be the one that would be an academic. Like I, you know, and at some points, like at one time someone told me, you know, I, I didn't have the right pedigree to be an academic, which is like totally ridiculous. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't talk. I didn't sound like an academic, like just all this stuff, like all this friction points (laughs) 
that, um, but in the end, those little friction points, I guess, didn't really add up. And it was those, those nudges that just kind of kept me going. And here I am. Wow. I, I'm so happy you told that story in the detail that you did. That is remarkable and, and honestly quickly rises up to be one of the best sort of origin stories I've heard doing this show. Thank you. Um, but, yeah, you know, so this idea that there's a mold and that somehow you have to fit into it to work in the in that realm is so, so silly. And on top of that, mm-hmm. like, don't we want academics that are kind of breaking that mold a little bit that can speak you know I, I colloquial so. terms like, like come yeah on. yeah like I mean definitely there was a, a lot of years I was very self-conscious about the way that I sounded and the way that I talked um and definitely there was this time of kind of two voices like one for work or academics you know my academic academic life and then one for family mm. um and I've just I guess I don't know as you get older you just care less <laughs> But, and just the cognitive dissonance that starts, that happens when you have to have two voices like that is really exhausting. And so I think I just kind of let it go and, and yeah, just, I don't know, just not worry about it so much. And if people judge me on things like that, then so be it. To hell Um, with them, I say. Yeah. Yeah. Like, obviously, you know, I'm here Yeah, and, and Yeah. And so. you're, you're kicking ass at it. So awesome. <laughs> yeah. Good on you. You stuck with it. But like you're, you're some days. Yeah. yeah. Some days. But it's proof. There is no recipe, right? There is no right. race. There's no recipe. It is just do yeah. with it what you will. And if you're stubborn enough to stick through it, good yeah, things can so, happen, right? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of it is persistence. And like, um, like I said, I mean, every step I was kind of like, mm, I don't know. I don't know. I was never one of those people that was just like, that's what I want to do. And like, my passion is going to carry me there. It was always more like, I'm just a really, really curious person. And if you give me time and space, I can kind of get curious about anything. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think that's more what carried me forward. Yeah. Totally. And it's worked. But you know, you, you kind of mentioned something when you were talking about wanting to become an astronomer is this, this vast world that you can't see, yes. right? And, and just the yes. fascination and yeah. curiosity that drives you there. And yeah. And in reality, I feel like when you look at your record, your your history, your CV, it, you've kept that dream going, right? It's not looking out into space, but I'd still it's argue yes. extraterrestrial <laughs> levels of curiosity yes. and weirdness uh, under the soil, right? Yes. I think that's exactly it. It just, it went from looking up to the sky and being like, wow, then to someone helping me, you know, helping me notice that like, oh, there's all that in the soil and <laughs> and I like that and I also didn't have to learn a whole bunch of physics <laughs> also so, good myself yeah. included not very good at physics so no physics it just killed me yeah. um I think I do it better now because I see where it's useful but back then I was just like oh sure. my god no yeah. yeah well time comes discipline and all that jazz too but yeah yeah so when you're trying to jump into a world as often more perplexing sometimes, you know, I would argue we probably know more about the universe around us than we do what's going on underneath the soil in a lot of cases. Like mm-hmm. there's a million different ways you can slice that pie and, and falling in with people like Dr. Melanie Jones and Jason Hooksima, like that helps frame it. But like, where did you find your route into this world of mycorrhizal interactions? I mean, even within mm-hmm. that, it's a huge umbrella, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely that was part of it was this idea. It was another space 
um, space, kind of a pun there. <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> see what you're space. doing. Yeah. It was another space that you couldn't see into without special instruments. Um, you know, mycorrhizal fungi, you, sometimes you can see them, you know, they're visible if you dig in the soil, but often, you know, we have to use like specialized instruments to see them and to know what's there. And that's always been really interesting to me, just as like, there's way more there than what you can see with your eyes and like, what are they doing? But the other, the other really, I think, pivotal moment though, is um, the reason I contacted Melanie Jones when I did is because there is a paper that came out that she was part of by um, a group. It was led by Samard, Suzanne Samard. And this was the paper where they showed um, small amounts of carbon moving below ground between uh, tree saplings of different uh, species. And then at that time, they were concluding and they kind of pushed this idea that it was moving through these mycorrhizal networks. Um, and I, I, just, I just thought this was like amazing. And so this idea that, so it, it kind of hit or, it, you know, it ticked off a lot of things in my mind. Like, <laughs> so I was learning about mycorrhizal fungi in my courses, but I did not study mycorrhizal fungi for my master's. I actually studied fern uh, fern diversity in oh, a temperate wow. old gold forest in Quebec. Yeah, huh. which I also, I mean, like I you know, I get curious about a lot of things and, and I loved that, my project. But while I was working on it, I was just starting to read more and more papers about mycorrhizal fungi. And in ectomycorrhizal, ectomycorrhizal fungi in particular, because um, they were the ones associated with trees mm. and trees we could see and I loved and was so captivated by forests. Like, you know, I've just always really enjoyed working in forests. But now there was these like little things that were quite powerful. Like they bring up nutrients, they bring up water, they give them to the trees in exchange for carbon. All this is going on and we can't see it. Yeah. And so that part just really fascinated me. Um, the fact, you know, there's a lot of Canadian scientists involved in that work I thought was really neat. Mm -hmm. And, and then I saw right away, Melanie was at, um, in British Columbia. So I was like, that's great. And then Melanie, I went out to visit her and Melanie was just like, not was, she is a very, very kind and just excellent scientist. And so, you know, there was the topic, mycorrhizal ecology and forests. But it was also the person, Melanie, yeah. like, had it been someone else, I don't know, I, yeah. I could have maybe ended up somewhere else, but it was just that combination. And, and again, like Melanie, I just saw someone I could learn so much from and, and yeah, and she was nice and caring and curious and yeah. So, yeah. so it was, I guess, yeah. So it just ticked a lot of boxes and then, and then I've stayed in it. Why have I stayed in it? <laughs> oh gosh, existential <laughs> spiral yeah. incoming. For, yeah, for for a lot of the same reasons. It's in forests. Uh, fungi, I think, are really interesting. I'm really captivated by the interaction right. between you know between trees. It's that interaction I think is really interesting. Um, yeah, and I think it just like harkens back to the same old like universe in the soil. Yeah, and me just being like, that's really cool, and. Um, you know, of course, like as an astronomer or someone, if you really like the night sky and if you live in a temperate region, it means you're usually out in the winter doing that <laughs> because in the <laughs> summer you got to be up so late. So, yeah. you know, working in soils actually in forests is a lot easier, in my opinion, for that reason. Too. Yeah. I mean, work-life balance has to factor in at some yeah. point, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah. It is a very seductive system 
because of how complex it is, how fascinating it is. And really, if you're someone that likes to dig in and kind of make their mark, how little we actually know about it, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it is. there's still yeah. so many more mysteries than there are knowns in the world of mycorrhizal interactions. Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely think that was really alluring for me as well of just like um, compared to how much we knew above ground about forests versus how much we knew below ground. I felt like I could probably make more of a contribution if I studied what was happening below ground. Like there was just a lot more unknowns and unanswered questions below ground than there was uh, above ground. But at the same time, because it is a difficult system to study and there is so many unknowns, I feel, you know, over these past couple of decades, it's also a system that's been very vulnerable to like, <laughs> like myth and magic. Yeah. And so, you know, it's kind of got two sides of it. And, you know, and I think fungi in particular, they're really, um, uh, what's the word? It's like, they're very easy to use. It's just sort of part of counterculture, like counter everything. <laughs> yeah. And fungi, they they fall in that space for whatever reason. I don't totally understand it. Maybe, you know, because they are kind of otherworldly and, and stuff. But so, yeah. So when you work on fungi, there is a lot going on around you in terms of what people think about fungi interpretation (laughs) pop culture like it's already in kind of a um a noisy space yeah big time oh boy that is i'm happy you mentioned it that way and and you did it tactfully (laughs) but you know it's it's cool that you got in with dr jones early on because you really have been at the ground level of how this story has evolved over time especially as it relates to forest mycorrhizal networks how you know whether or not they're sharing that sort of stuff. And so as a scientist studying this all these years, how have you seen sort of the science evolve in tandem with the way it's interpreted? And, you know, we've talked with uh, your colleagues a little bit uh, Mm -hmm. in detail, really, with Dr. Jones about how this sort of wood wide web thing got really blown out of proportion. Journalism took way more of advantage of the science than it should have kind of thing. How have you really seen these two sort of the story and then the data evolve over time? Yeah, yeah. So one interesting part of that that review paper that we worked on was um, working on a citation analysis. So in that, for w- what we did for that is um, we identified uh, what we called like influential studies. So these are studies that had received um, a lot of citations already. Mm-hmm. Um, and these were studies that looked at common mycorrhizal network structure or function. So function being... Um, how do they affect tree seedlings or do they mediate resource transfer? And then structure being kind of like, what does the network look like? How mm. many trees are connected? That kind of stuff. Yeah. And then, so we tracked the citations of those influential studies and we found that over time, um, that the citations, you know, have deviated from results from those original papers and they haven't deviated at random. <laughs> <laughs> They've, they've deviated in a certain direction, in a direction that promotes a positive spin on common mycorrhizal networks and forests. So, um, so that's a really tangible way that I've seen how uh, studies today or how uh, conclusions and results have deviated from those past studies. 
And another thing that happened too is like, you know, a lot of times in those old older studies, there'd be caveats. Well, we don't know for sure, or this this could have been happening at the same time as this, but those caveats are not carried forward in the new literature citing those old studies. So we're getting this like biased characterization of the structure and function of common mycorrhizal networks in the new literature. And it's not a trivial amount. Like yeah. for when we were talking about common micro, mycorrhizal network function, today, 50% of the papers that are citing those, those past studies are making inaccurate statements Ooh. in some way. So that's a big number. Like oh. if I, if we would have done the analysis and would have been sitting at about 5%, I probably wouldn't have fussed too much. You know, sure. it's like, because, you know, we all do it. It's like, sometimes <laughs> you read a paper, maybe you don't quite understand it. Right. And so you cite the results incorrectly. Sometimes maybe you didn't read the whole paper, you know, things like that. Those, yep. <laughs> you know, those kinds of accidents and they're pretty, you know, benign happen. Or, you know, if there wasn't this direction to the deviations, but the fact that it's a high number and it's directional, it's biased. Yeah. So, you know, we look at the public and it's like, yeah, and we can scold journalists and, you know, scold the public and all that. But really, I would say a sizable portion of that responsibility also falls on us scientists. And so it, it, it really makes a tricky situation right now because yeah. it's like, um, so when we ask people or say organizations like, hey, can you change your message because it's not supported? Like it's basically misinformation, what you're spreading on your site or whatever else. And then, you know, and, and, if they come back to us in a very reasonable way and say, well, we're looking through the literature and in your paper, you say there's a bias in the literature. And if we're doing a search in good faith, like, yeah. and we're not part of this field, like, what are we supposed to do with that? It's a solid like we're point. doing, it is, yeah. it's a very solid point. And so now, cause basically we're saying, well, sorry, you can't look at the literature because it's biased. So then where do they go? Dang. <laughs> like, yeah. It it really puts us in an awkward spot here. And yeah. so, yeah, so I try to be careful in that there are many actors that share some responsibility in um, the messaging of the Wood Wide Web and the misinformation that it's that it's caused. And yeah, it's really problematic, Matt. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I laugh. It's not funny at all, but I just, I'm a little bit stumped. I'm not sure... Uh, what to do besides being really transparent and kind of honest and admitting like, yeah, something happened here that right. we need to talk about and we need to figure out how to move forward from this. Well, yeah. I mean, this is something that you, I, and a bunch of us probably aren't going to tackle anytime soon. It's it's a bigger issue. And a lot of it's the motivation system, the reward system of academ yeah. academia and how publishing, even peer review works sometimes. But all of that aside, I think what you just said there is really important is just be transparent, be open and honest because it's humans doing it. We're fallible. We're fallible organisms. Yeah. We succumb to biases, both conscious and not. And as long as we're willing to correct the ship a little bit, then we're yeah. at least pushing the needle forward in a way that's progressive, right? And, and instead of doubling down on it, I've, I've seen plenty of instances of people just doubling down and saying, yeah, well, this is a good story. And if it gets people to care then yeah, we're good. Or if it changes policy, well, if it's based on lies or based on misinformation <laughs> oh, yeah. and someone pokes holes in yeah. it later, 
then we've just weakened the argument. Like just because it could be happening doesn't mean it is and doesn't mean we should be hanging everything on this for, you know, like you said, myth and magic. Yeah. It's a very slippery slope, I think, to um, position yourself in like, well, it might be true or it's good enough and it makes people do the things that we want them to do. It makes Mm -hmm. them care about for us in the way we want them to. So like, don't say anything. And then, you know, and I'm always just like, okay, reverse the situations though. Right. If this was a different story story that was like uh, promoting destruction of forests, then you would challenge that because yeah. we don't like where the story goes. In this case, we like where the story goes and we're willing to forfeit uh, truth to let it go that place. And, you know, and that's that's not science. Like that's that's not that's what we're trained to do. Propaganda. <laughs> it is. What it and is. It, so it's like. Science, as scientists, we are trained, it's like, you know, yeah, it might be uncomfortable or awkward or painful where this ends <laughs> up, but we still got to be honest and like, you know, here's here's what the data show. This is our best understanding right now of what the data means. Right. And yeah, and when we stop doing that, and already, I mean, there is increasing mistrust of the public with scientists and of science, and this Wood Wide Web story I am very concerned has just fueled all of that. Like if I, all I can think, it just must be a very confusing place for someone who maybe has been sort of tracking this story. And then like, so what, what is it? Because again, there's this bias in the publication, the scientific literature, there's some very prominent voices that are very good at, at, you know, telling the story. And then we come along and it's like, no, there's no evidence for it, you know, and there's been a subsequent paper that confirms like our arguments as well. But it's a very confusing space, I think. And yeah, and it that is, it is. And I, it I concerns really, me. Yeah, I do feel for the public because it's so easy to be in this bubble and say, well, come on, do your homework. But, you know, how many times have you said, heard someone say, like, do your research and it is not research. <laughs> right. And so like <laughs> no. expecting them to do the heavy lifting a lot of the time is. <laughs> It's not fair, yeah. right? Because most no. people don't have, like, I don't have to worry about how quirks and nuance work to get through my day. Most people yeah. don't have to think about anything related to science to get through the day, make ends meet, yeah. and, and take care of their family. So, like, yeah. expecting them to go above and beyond the call of duty. It's oof, too much. Yeah, yeah, it is too much. And, then, and I think, you know, it all gets back to this thing about trust. So, like, so people don't have to do all that research. They need to trust scientists need to trust the experts or whatever else right right there's this massive amount of trust that is placed on us and if it's eroded or if we are not nurturing it like to me that's there can be some pretty disastrous consequences and even from discipline to discipline it's like i don't have time to go and research everything about nutrition right but i'm trusting that discipline to have a high bar and to have like, you know, criticism and a skeptical eye on the research that comes out of that field so that when I go look at the papers or read something about it, that is more, you know, kind of a general look at it, I can trust what comes out of that field. And right now with like common mycorrhizal networks and the wood wide web, I don't trust what has come out of the field. Hmm. Um, You know, and it's not to say that I don't think the experiments were done well or whatever else, but... Now, whenever I read something about the wood wide web, like I am very 
critical and just really looking for, um, are there alternative explanations? You know, when we look at the outcomes of the results, yes, focused on common mycorrhizal networks, but are there alternative explanations? Yeah. And, you know, and I, and I still see that with papers coming out. They, they will see their results in light of common mycorrhizal networks. But when you step back a little bit and it's just like, well, it could actually be this or maybe even this and has nothing to do with the mycorrhizal network. Hmm. So we're still not there yet. Right. Um, but I'm, I'm optimistic that our review and the other review will help people. Um, yeah. Just, just train their eyes to be a little bit more skeptical about, uh, these experiments and what they can say and what they don't say. Right. I can't yeah. believe I'm kind of amongst my family group, uh, the eternal pessimist sometimes, but like <laughs> I have optimism too, because the reactions to conversations like this and those I've had with your colleagues have been largely positive. People reaching out saying, Hey, I had no idea. Oh my gosh. I've been, you know, I, I took mm -hmm. the, 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 the article at face value and now I, you know, I'm yeah. very little pushback. In fact, a, a really good friend reached out the other day and said like, I need to rethink, you know, the, the seriousness <laughs> with which I, I take yeah. away from my books, you know? And it was like, Oh my God, that's like a whole nother thing. Yeah. That, the books. Yeah. Like that has been like five years ago, I read nonfiction books and was not critical enough at all. Mm -hmm. I just, because I was like, they're nonfiction yeah. and like they're nonfiction. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. now I just, I don't know. Like I'm living proof that anyone can write a book. <laughs> I could have like said now, whatever I wanted on those yeah. pages. I tried to be honest, but you know. <laughs> no. And I just, I don't know. I just, I mean, I still read them. They are fascinating, but I do not take them as evidence for anything. I still read them as stories now. Yeah. And then if I'm interested in something, I'll I'll like call a colleague that is in that area. What do you, what do you think about this? Yeah. And then just ask them like, what's what's the latest? What's the current understanding? But so I'm someone that has colleagues in different fields and can do that. Imagine right. if you're someone in the public like that. You know, you don't have those links, and so yeah. So no, those nonfiction books. That's um. You know, and some of them are fact checked, but it's not easy to find out if they are. And right, like, right, and it's then just to kind the degree, a, what degree are they fact checked? You know, yeah. And so. so I think that there's some improvements in that area could be made as well. Or if improvements can't be made, then it's educating the public to like treat these as opinions. Yeah, that's but, that's basically what they are. I mean, yeah. that's what conversations like this I hope are doing. Right? Is is humanizing the science, the scientists, and then showing them that you know it's it's a deeper nuanced discussion, and nuance is yeah. like the biggest awful word these days. No one wants to consider yeah. it. But you know, you yourself has spent years studying this stuff, uh, especially as it relates to some of the bigger uh, topics within this whole wood wide web, common mycorrhizal network, whatever we're going to refer to it as colloquially. Um, the seedlings, right? And so sometimes it's pitched as, oh, trees are caring for their babies. Mm -hmm. Isn't it adorable? They're caring for unrelated babies. It's kumbaya out there. And so <laughs> you've done it in, in angiosperms. You've studied it in gymnosperms. Like what is going on? And is there any like generalizations we can make or is it really context and species dependent oftentimes? Yes to all of that. Yes. So, but let me. <laughs> <laughs> We're done here. Me, no. <laughs> yes. Um, but okay, let me let me explain a little bit. Yes. So, what we find is um, 
Actually, one of the probably the most pronounced trends that we find is when we do a greenhouse study and say we manipulate uh, mycorrhizal fungi. Um, well, we can do it in a few different ways. Either we can compare a seedling that, say, has been inoculated or not, or we might um, apply, say, a soil inoculum to pots or, or a sterilized one and then compare the growth effects of seedlings. And in greenhouse experiments, we see pretty like decent differences in terms of like, yeah, there's definitely an effect. And even when we source the inoculum from different forests, apply it in a greenhouse setting, compare the seedling growth in response to these different inoculums, and they'll contain mycorrhizal fungi. Yeah, we see pretty big effects in the greenhouse. When we then repeat these experiments in the field, we have not found any effects. Wow. And and so, and let me explain that a little bit. So in the field being, so we've looked, uh, so we'll, you know, put inoculated seedlings into forests or recovering forests or forests that have been disturbed in some way. So we've done a lot of work looking at um, working in forests that have really high levels of tree mortality caused, uh, caused by mountain pine beetle. Mm-hmm. So most of all the canopy trees are dead. Mm-hmm. And then um, exploring this like, well, if we provide the seedlings with the right mycorrhizal fungi, does that help them in a forest setting? And and our answer is sort of consistently being, no, it doesn't matter. Huh. And it's not that mycorrhizas aren't important. Like that is not at all what we find. It's that these forests, even though they look different, they're disturbed, the canopy trees are all dead, um, fires, whatever it is, uh, there's still mycorrhizal fungi in those soils. And so it's not like they get totally wiped out. Sure. They're still there. And then, you know, we've tried this in different ways where we'll have a seedling, we'll inoculate it and transplant that into like different sites, compare and and it doesn't seem to make a difference. Like seedlings that were inoculated versus those that were, they're doing the same in these mm-hmm. sites. And then we've also tried experiments where we bring in a little bit of soil from like a healthy forest and then move it into a disturbed forest and plant some seedlings so we're trying to like bring in fungi and it doesn't make a difference and so you know so we tried this in a variety of different ways and to me it's yeah it's it seems to be a pretty consistent answer in that we get big effects on the greenhouse when we basically obliterate most of the environmental variation (laughs) that you would see in a forest right Yeah, yeah And then when we go to the forest where all that complexity resides and, you know, there are lots of ectomycorrhizal fungi and there's all this stuff going on, all this complexity that that bringing in this fungi in these different ways doesn't make a difference to the seedlings. So the seedlings are not dying, you know, they're growing fine. And it's because the mycorrhizal fungi are there with these different disturbances, the communities that reside in the soils will be quite different. But in terms of how they affect the seedlings... Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's really not that clear. Like we're not seeing a pronounced response. Right. So that, that's one thing I've kind of taken away over the years of like doing these different experiments as we get all excited about our greenhouse experiments and they are, they're really good, you know, proof of concept, something's happening and we've like isolated it to it's, it's probably the mycorrhizal fungi. But then when we move those into the field, we're not seeing those big effects. And, Mm. um, so it almost to me is like when we're thinking about forests and how to manage them to increase seedling success, like the next generation, 
it's not something that you can sprinkle in with a little bit of soil. (laughs) It's something that is characteristic of that whole stand. And so when you're thinking about those seedlings, it's really managing it from a stand level, not little individual seedlings and the right inoculum. That's just what we've seen in our systems. But I fully am aware and admit that there's other systems where that mycorrhizal inoculum does seem to matter and it it does have a change or it affects like succession or how seedlings are doing. Um, From what I see, it's mostly in grasslands. um, And there actually hasn't been that many studies done in forests. So so I think now it's a really important question to answer under what conditions do we need, say, to apply mycorrhizal inoculum and when do we don't and why? Right. Well, I think there's sort of like trying to oversimplify that uh, system and saying, well, it's if, if a little bit works in a lab, then it's good everywhere. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's honestly, it's forgetting the fact that like one species or two species don't make a rule, right? Every player is different. The, the fungi that are there are different. The species of plants that are there are different. The conditions are going to be different. I mean, you look in the soil just at nutrients and little spots only a few meters away can be radically different envi- micro environments mm-hmm. really. And so, you know, the, the, the ease with which we kind of fall back on the, well, here's the rule, we're done. Like, it doesn't work that way in ecology. It's yeah. an ever-changing system, ever-changing players. And even like the idea of a community that can be defined, it's helpful, but it's flawed. It's not real with what we're seeing out there. Yeah, yeah. So there's just, yeah, there's all this stuff going on in the forest that is really hard to simplify into a single little treatment, I think. Um but yeah, you know, there's lots of unanswered questions I think are good avenues to explore. And, and uh, you know, and, and I think it is really safe to say that mycorrhizal fungi in general benefit plants. Like sure. <laughs> there is hundreds of experiments right. showing that. Like, you know, and there's situations, you know, trees, like many tree species are not going to be able to establish and survive without their mycorrhizal fungi. So I don't think anybody argues that. No. It's just this idea of like, can we tailor the system? Uh, can we tailor it to have the desired effects that we want in forests? And and I, yeah, I think that's still a pretty open question. And I probably sit a little bit on the skeptical side of that. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, yeah. as you should, right? Until the data show otherwise, like question it. Why not? Yeah. No, I've definitely learned some hard lessons <laughs> <laughs> about being caught up in the wood wide web that uh yeah they've changed me so (laughs) yeah yeah but you know this idea of carbon transfer comes up time and time again that's like kind of the the whole sort of anchor it's all hanging on and i've never really gotten a good answer because maybe i don't ask it the right way but like I understand how a plant transfers carbon to fungi and how fungi might transfer carbon to other plants you know i could see where that would work but like what are some of those alternate mechanisms that would mm-hmm. explain carbon transfer underground between yeah. species? Okay. So even what you said, Matt, is kind of interesting because there was something that you said in that sentence. I was like, oh, I don't even know that. So I'll tell you what it was. So, okay. So carbon from plant to fungus, that's pretty worked out. Okay. Like we have a good idea how that could happen. Not, not a super clear idea though. Still lots of questions Dang. unanswered. <laughs> Okay, so that's one part of the flow that you described. And then the other one, the fungus to the plant, the carbon flow that way, that is how? 
Yeah, like, I don't know. That's I literally have no idea if I'm even asking it the right. The fungus, it's it's a carbon limited organism. Right. Um, so in the second review uh, led by Nils Henriksen et al., that is a really important point they raised. They're just like, how? How are those uh, sugars? I mean, they're they're made into different sugars, but how are they passed on from the fungus to the plant? There's no known mechanism yet. Wow. So that part, you know, and, and they do mention like, okay, so is the carbon then attached to different molecules that are moving? Like, so, you know, something in a form of nitrogen or something attached with nitrogen or phosphorus mm. or something, that kind of molecule, maybe that's how it's, how it's moving. So there is still a lot of questions on that little piece of the pathway that you mentioned. So there's that, the physiological questions. But then the other pathways I think you're talking about is like, how might carbon be moving below ground if not through a mycorrhizal network? And what we came across is there are a number of experiments that show it's definitely possible mm -hmm. that no common mycorrhizal network is needed for small amounts of carbon to be moving between plants in mm. uh, planted in the forest. And so, so it does seem to be real. And if anything, we think it might be through root exudates. So you have uh. to imagine, so you have a, a mycorrhizal root and then there's a little bit of soil and then a another mycorrhizal root. And those hyphae are probably growing very close together. They, not, they aren't necessarily fused into uh, what we call a common mycorrhizal network, but they're probably growing close together, small distances. And if they're exuding compounds, that could easily be picked up by the next one. And like I said, there's a number of experiments that seem to show that things are moving through exudates. Like hmm. this common mycorrhizal network is not needed. That doesn't mean that resources aren't transferred through a common mycorrhizal network. It just means they're not necessary. And you right. can still see this wow. little bit of resources trickling below ground. We thought that was pretty interesting and like fascinating. Like, how does that happen? Because if you have a bit of carbon moving around in the soil, you know, and organisms are all like carbon limited in the soil. Like, why aren't they eating it <laughs> right. up? Like, <laughs> right. how is that even moving from like mycorrhizal hyphae to mycorrhizal hyphae? And, and that's a good question. And I, I don't know. Um, so that's usually the other pathway that we talk about hmm. is through the soil. The other pathway that could happen is that, um, and these are with the labeling experiments that say you label one plant with carbon dioxide and the, the carbon is the label. Okay, and then it, say, moves below ground, and then what you think is moving below ground and ends up in the other plant. But the other way that could be happening is that plant that was initially labeled respires. It could be respiring that labeled carbon that then is taken up by photosynthesis by the uh, next plant. Dang, I had, oh, gosh, yeah. I got to go back to so, <laughs> go to botany, man. <laughs> so so that. that could happen, too. So then it's not even moving below ground. It's, yeah. it's through... Uh, respiration photosynthesis and there are there are controls that we can set up to account for that mm -hmm. so that we know so it's it's not you know we can control for that um but it is something else to keep in mind so Dang. soil air yeah <laughs> I forgot. yeah and it's plants have mitochondria too <laughs> yeah and it's, so it's just these like you know if you step back from the focus on the common mycorrhizal networks and really push yourself like how else can this carbon be moving? Yeah, we all want it to move through the common mycorrhizal network, and that's what we're focused on. Sure. But we really have to be pushing for these alternative explanations and eliminating all these other simpler right. alternative explanations compared to like, 
these fungi are moving resources for two disconnected trees, why would they do that? Right. Like it's a complicated, it's a complicated answer, I think. Yeah, it's wild too. And, you know, a lot of this is discussed as if there's agency of some sort of exchange. Like, oh, yeah. yes, you give me three carbons, I give you four, and then we'll remember yeah. this kind of thing. Like how much of it could just be passive too, you know? And that's that's where I guess where a lot of the unknowns come from is just like, what are the mechanisms? Sometimes it, yeah. is it possible to just be yeah. a passive? Passive, except that like um, carbon is often moving... So those concentration gradients, though, mm. they still have to be actively maintained. Oh, it's not like water. Okay. You know, water is pulled through through um, the gradient, you know, from soil to the air. Right. But but carbon and sugars, um, they are moved by concentration gradients, but that is like actively regulated to maintain mm. those concentration gradients. So so it's not I don't know if I call it passive, but uh, but definitely source sync. I sure. think is okay. is a good way to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And and everything that you're talking about, like you're a specialist in this world, right? And and the amount of things you've identified as unknowns are staggering to me because it was like <laughs> I was assuming we had this figured out. No. Boy, no. oh boy. <laughs> yeah. No. And and I have to, of course, give Jason and Melanie credit because it's not me that I was like, oh, ding, ding, like thinking of all these ideas. <laughs> it was the three of us together examining each other's work and past experiments and finding faults and like limitations to them that made us all acutely aware of right. all the issues and limitations. Yeah. yeah. So it's, so I, I really have to stress that it was, I mean, yeah, of course, looking at other people's experiments, but it really hit home when you're looking at your own past experiment <laughs> that's already published and you're like, oh, it could be these other things. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, that's part of the iterative mm -hmm. scientific process or should be at least. But, you know, the other part that I always get hung up on is this concept of competition, right? We wouldn't even have trees if it wasn't for the fact that these organisms are competing with each other because all of that wood and height, not doing yeah. a lot other than to compete better with your neighbor. Yeah, to get up high. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, that's the other part is when I think about seedlings, especially in a forest context, like competition has to play into it. And so when you see that, again, that vast disconnect between the lab where everything is kind of controlled and it's a one-to-one, -one, mm -hmm. you know, oftentimes into a, a community of organisms competing for limited everything, mm -hmm. that's got to be oh, yeah. a big factor in, in how the, the, you know, some of the differences that you're seeing. Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, even, you know, if you walk into a forest and you visit it over many years, um, you know, one year you'll see, okay, there's a whole bunch of seeds, cones that fall on the ground or whatever, and then there'll be seedlings germinate. And, you know, you come back year after year after year, and those seedlings aren't all trees. Like, they get thinned out. They're they're <laughs> outcompeted. Like, the forest would look really different if there was no competition. No. Um, it'd be this carpet of seedlings and yeah. like saplings and you just don't see that. Right. So like there is competition going on, but it's a balance. Like there's competitive interactions going on, but there's also facilitation. Um, you know, mycorrhizas, like we typically consider them a mutualism. So it just sort of depends on what scale you're thinking about on where the interaction and what organisms are included in those interactions. But there's, yeah, there's a lot of complexity. And I'm not sure if we could just summarize it to one type of interaction that rules them all because it changes. It changes over time, over space, 
like which organisms you're considering, all sure. of that. Yeah. Now, like, again, apologize if this hasn't really gotten much farther than my understanding of it is like, I, there's an evolutionary history component to this too. Gymnosperms hail from a, a an older lineage than angiosperms, yeah. not, yeah. you know, is there a difference when you start to look at what work has been done on conifers versus flowering trees or is there yeah. too early days? It's too early. So uh, most of the work on common mycorrhizal networks has looked at conifers. And uh, there's a few studies, not not very many, that have looked at um, angiosperms. But yeah, not wow. very many. And so, and so most of the work, like, I think when we counted, it was like, I want to say like 30 or 40% of the studies, the field studies, uh, looked at Douglas fir, that was the focal species. Hmm. So that's a third of the studies, conifers. Wow. And then there's a bunch more that pine of some species. Um, but yeah, it's mostly all been done on conifers. So no, I mean, so I just, I wouldn't even go there in terms of like guessing because nice. yeah, we just don't know. Um, they, we haven't looked at it. Yeah. It's kind of like this idea. I think you talked about it in previous podcasts, like you know, this idea of trees sending uh, alarm calls to each other through common mycorrhizal networks. And and the short answer is like, this has never been tested in a forest. We have no idea. Uh, <laughs> we have no idea if this happens because it's never even been tested. And so, you know, this idea, yeah, so how do gymnosperms versus androsperms respond to access to mycorrhizal networks and stuff? Like, I think it's pretty <laughs> open question. Yeah. I love that though. You know what I mean? I, I I love living in a world of mystery though, because there's so much more we get to kind of like, oh boy, what's yeah. going to happen? I mean, it is daunting, right? From a, a career perspective. It is. It's daunting. And I, and I also appreciate that it's frustrating for people who are managing forests and have to be making policy decisions True, because they don't want to wait on us for 50 years to make a decision. <laughs> so like, so we can't, it is fun. And I love that, that curiosity element of science. Like that's a major reason I'm here, but I'm also a pretty pragmatic person in terms of like, how are these results being used by forest managers? Can they be used? Um, what do we need to know to mm. help manage our forests in a better way? And so, and that is near term stuff. And it's actually pretty important because yeah. when we're thinking about mitigating climate change, like protecting forests, managing forests is a big part of that. Right. And so we, we do need those answers soon. And, you know, if anything of just like, well, what are the role of mycorrhizal fungi in carbon cycling? Are they something that we can manipulate in terms of drawing down carbon? Like, mm. what's the deal? And I don't think we know the answer to that at all. And so, but these are the questions that need to be answered, I would say, pretty quickly, because, um, yeah, like, serious stuff relies on on how we understand forests. Yeah. That is a solid point. <laughs> I was coming at that from one angle and one angle only. So yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's true because yeah. you know, what's, what is it worth scientifically if, you know, it takes 50 years to get to that point and too many things have happened to even mm -hmm. have the original sort of theory yeah. or hypothesis not matter anymore or exactly. Yeah, it just becomes almost moot. Yeah. And it's just like, well, that's nice. We could have used that information 50 years ago when we were right. trying to figure out like, um, yeah, like how to manage forests, which trees do we plant, where, like all this kind of information we need now. Yeah. And 
So, yeah, yeah. And, you know, thinking about it from like the mycorrhizal network, uh, you know, the mycorrhizal community, I should say, is like all the different species that could be evolved there. And like we have managed forests for millennia without that knowledge, right? Or maybe some yeah. inkling of it. So how do we move forward with like the broader brushstrokes that give us at least something to to, to hang our hat on and, and try, right? And so, yeah. you know, when you think about trying to understand mycorrhizal communities independent of the plants themselves, do you get to this point where you're like, well, we know they should be there. There are some mm -hmm. players that we do know and can readily identify, but there's got to be an even more daunting task, like trying to understand the floor of a region, let alone the mycoflora of a region oh, yeah. in a forest yeah. or a stand. Like that's yeah. even got to be earlier days. I heard a microbial biologist once say in a, a talk that I that really resonated with me is like where we're at today with microbial biology is kind of where botany was at 150 years ago. Like we're just <laughs> yeah. trying to describe differences at What's this there? point. Like what yeah. is it? Do we even know? Yeah, no, that that really resonates with me as well. No, it's true. Like, what's there? What are they doing? Yeah. Um, what do they do together? Like, we don't, yeah, we don't have answers to these questions. And so definitely like with DNA sequencing technologies, that's really helped. Um, it's helped us come a long ways, but it's still um yeah, it's still early. Yeah. It's still early. And but there are, yeah, but I think that there are some still some strong take-homes in that we know mycorrhizal fungi are important. We know um, in terms of like providing nutrition, water to the trees, we know that they also might be involved in pathogen protection. Um, you know, so we do know these things. It's not like we're starting from totally nowhere. Sure. Um, but yeah. Yeah, just I was just like, there's a lot of things to figure <laughs> yeah. out. Um, but, you know, on the flip side, even if we understood some of this stuff, what would you do to try to alter it? Like we can kind mm -hmm. of plant things, but even on once you get past a certain acreage, it becomes untenable to think that, you know, good old elbow grease can kind of play in. Like, what do you oh, do yeah. when it's soil microbes and the soil conditions have changed or compaction? You know, like, how do you reverse that or change it on a landscape scale? It, it's a big question mark. And that's, I think, yeah. going back to what I said about excitement is like, I get a lot of emails from listeners like, what do I do? How should I do this? And I, I don't have time to answer them all. But it's conversations like this that just at least shine a light on, hey, here's a fruitful area of research that we don't know hardly anything about. Like, try to maybe go make your mark there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was interesting. Someone was uh, talking to me about um, kind of the problems, I guess, some of the fallout of the Wood Wide Web in terms of forest management and it was it was in the context of like some private woodlot owners and they were um hesitant to be removing rotten trees because uh they were worried about um uh like the wood wide web you know trees won't be able to talk to each other anymore or mm. just you know you're removing pieces of their family and so to me that's a pretty good example of like things gone drastically wrong yeah. and just like okay no that yeah, this is this is not this is not good. <laughs> yeah. Um and yeah, so I don't know. So hopefully with all of this that there is a little bit of correction of that. Uh because there are, you know, there's lots of great places to go to, you know, extension offices and everything else for for managing forests and of course this is done at a different scales as like more the the private owner versus um industrial logging, but mm there there is information there in terms of like managing forests and 
but you know, but I get it's also it's like it's difficult. Like we all want to really do a good job in managing forests, and there's these extraordinary unknowns that are placed on forests right now. It's like, are they going to be resilient to climate change? How do we do that? And you know, and if anything, I hold I think just this whole wood wide web stuff has been a distraction because I think that there are answers to those to those questions and we don't need to know or verify if trees are talking to each other through (laughs) below ground mycorrhizal networks to be answering those questions like I think we have the data and we have studies to answer those questions and sure you know you can let us work on the side of answering this question do trees talk to each other through the wood wide web but I really don't think it's relevant to forest management. I think, again, there are a lot of studies and research done on that topic, independent of the Wood Wide Web, that can take us places wow. in terms of understanding what we can do with our forests to make them more resilient and, and all of that. That is powerful words coming from someone who would benefit greatly from <laughs> focusing only on that part of it. But thank you. I mean, that is the realistic viewpoint. The practical applied viewpoint of all this is like all the theoretical science in the world doesn't mean anything if we don't have a planet to live on, right? And and we have exactly. to, it can inform all of the actions. I don't want to downplay it, but like the application yep. side of it has to be practical, pragmatic, and doable on often shoestring budgets. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's like priorities. And, um, you know, and of course, like, I want to see more research done about the functional significance of common mycorrhizal networks and forests. But yeah, again, I don't think solving this problem is going to impact these larger problems of what we do with forests. Like, it's kind of a separate thing. Yeah. But it just so happens that this separate thing the wood wide web and talking trees has like captured the public imagination. Yeah. And um, so, yeah. So part of me is like, stop looking here, look <laughs> over there. Like, There's more important stuff. Like yeah. just don't worry about this. We'll figure it out. Like, but I love it. yeah. Well, in that case, uh, for those that want to keep track of what you're doing as you're figuring it out, you and your colleagues, where do you recommend they go looking? Uh, well, there's, so I would suggest looking at those review papers and, um, you know, I can pass you the links. Uh, the three of us, it was, it was led by Melanie Jones. Um, she wrote a nice article that is geared more for the public. It's a, an article in Undark magazine and, um, it's free access and it's written in a way that's a little bit probably more, um, meaningful and makes sense to the public. And so it's a really nice entry into kind of thing, how things sort of went off the rails with yeah. the wide, wide web. It's a great article. And yeah. Okay. You've read it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I, I thought, yeah. So I, I thought that was a really nice piece that, that Melanie led. Um, and yeah. And so, yeah, there's the science articles, but yeah, again, I mean, we've already talked about this. I'm not going to it's it's hard to point the public to all the scientific literature on it because some of it I'm like it's biased. <laughs> but how some do they it, find your like, scientific literature? Like how do they find oh, more about the work coming out of your lab? Okay. <laughs> well, my website, my website would be the best place. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, Thank and again, you. as always, I put up links so that people don't have to like pull over, or get out of the shower to do like yeah, remember all okay, this stuff. Good. But Dr. Yeah. Karst, this has been eloquent, nuanced, and fantastic. You. 
I'm so thankful you just kind of got stubborn and stuck with it because <laughs> here you are today having great conversation and, and really you taught me a ton and I know everyone listening is, is going to be thankful for, for just the thoughts you put in their head and yeah, mm-hmm. thank you for the work that you do to to make science honest. Thank you. Um, yeah, thank you. That means a lot to me to hear that. So of course. Um, yeah, and thanks for inviting me on the show and yeah, and I hope everybody can... I don't know, take away something different from this episode. They so thanks do. for listening. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. I really appreciate it. But in the meantime, hang in there and just keep it up. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you. All right. Fantastic stuff. And what a great origin story. It just goes to show you there are no roadmaps for success in the sciences or really any career. And of course, look at all of the great work she and her colleagues have been able to accomplish I thank Dr. Kars for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us. And as always, go check the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast to find out more about what we talked about today. As always, this show could not exist without support, and there are a lot of great ways to do that. You can, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, pick up some of our customizable apparel. You can also pick up stickers, or you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants. A little bit of financial support each month goes a long way in ensuring this show has a future. So thank you to everyone who has kicked in thus far. I couldn't be doing it without them. At the very least, make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in because I always have a lot of great conversations just over the horizon. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.